Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome back to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. We're in the thick of a podcast series about silence. I'm grateful to be recording the final bits of the audio for today's podcast in a home that is finally richly and joyously silent with my kids back at school. But most of the conversations that I was privileged to have for this podcast revolved around the burden and the pain of silence, particularly for women. I began by speaking to the playwright Rebecca Lenkovich. Um, Rebecca, thank you so much for um, for making time for this, despite everything. It's really appreciated. From what I know of your kind of amazing work, is that so much of your work attempts to reveal silences or unheard voices. And I would just love to hear your thoughts generally on on how you see the role of silence in your writing. Well, I suppose I've never consciously thought I'm writing about silence, but I have consciously been enraged by voices being forgotten. For instance, when I wrote about the suffragettes, it was very much inspired by a brilliant um, book called Shoulder to Shoulder by Midge McKenzie. And it was testimonies of the suffragettes and it was first-hand speeches, you know, um, written or spoken. And it was so incredible to hear these women from the early 1900s, and I'd never heard them before. And I looked back to my school days and I remember sort of cartoons of kind of rather bulldogish looking women being chained to railings. And that was kind of the suffragette movement. And what I read in this incredible book was just every class, every age, but everyone female. Um, They did have male supporters and a few men went to prison, but predominantly just this sea of women who I felt had been rather forgotten. And so with her naked skin, I wanted to make them feel incredibly modern without um, any gimmickry. And I went into a lot of research for that. And I think it's incredible how words can release that and I read a lot of the contemporary fiction, The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall and various writings and various words came up, which kind of like one woman said, oh, I puked. And I thought, gosh, that was from 1900, I puked. And it suddenly felt so sort of modern and fragile and vulnerable. And so, yeah, her naked skin was very much about breaking a silence in terms of bringing those women to the stage and yeah, being silenced within society, which I think women have historically, and hopefully it won't happen ad infinitum. You know, hopefully that is what is happening daily and yearly. But um, the progress is so slow, I think. And I think it's very invisible, this kind of, there is misogyny that you see around, but there's also this silencing that is really quite terrifying, I think, over women. I know that it applies to a lot of different communities, but I think, you know, the swathe of half of the human race, women, you know, have been so silenced historically. And I do find that, you know, revolting and repelling and terrifying. Yeah. I was completely inspired by Rebecca, particularly her desire to make visible so many invisible stories. 
Lucy Deer, theatre practitioner and creator of All In Your Head, takes a similar approach. It's really important for me that I think about that we bring in the silences around the kind of domestic abuse and violence and women. Um, And I was really excited to hear about um, All In Your Head as a show and it felt so relevant and so resonant at the moment. Um, um, And I was was excited to be able to reach you, Lucy, and to be in touch with you. and, And I'd love to hear a little bit about the show and the kind of the, the reason you make, you wanted to conceive and make the show um, and understand how and how it relates to some of these issues I'm thinking around around the role of silence or the role of artists to break silences. All in Your Head is a one woman show based on real women's stories around uh, coercive control and domestic abuse. I've been thinking about creating a one woman show for a while. Uh, based on my experience of being in, a, in an abusive relationship and based on others' experience of being in an abusive relationship. And it felt like the right um, format. And it was due to be part of Calm Down Dear at Camden People's Theatre last May 2020. But for obvious reasons, the um, the festival was cancelled. That The fact that we couldn't be in the theatre for the performance date meant that we really needed to kind of lean into the form of working online and explore what it is like to be inside this character's home via Zoom and via an online platform and play with the idea of the voyeurism that um, the audience experience when watching this person, this character, Leanne, go through this slow um experience of abuse in a relationship and not be able to do anything so we were quite interested in playing with that in terms of silence the idea really was a big like middle finger up to the fact that I was part of women's groups with women from a range like a range of ages races abilities classes who all had very similar stories to mine but we were kind of meeting and as in a secret group um and sharing our our stories like it was us that had something to be ashamed about and I understand why why those groups are private and necessarily silent but there was also a real sense of injustice in the survivors of these relationships or abusive relationships carrying around their stories as though it was something that they'd done wrong and as opposed to something awful that had been done to them. Uh, so I really wanted to uh, make these stories heard um, and, and shed light on what's normally hidden in the shadows on, you know, shushed and not spoken about. It's a fantastic introduction, Lucy. It's opened loads of questions. I wanna, I want, I've got loads of questions to ask you. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the process? Because creating a, a safe space where people are able to open up and tell you these extraordinary, awful stories is is is, is vital. Um, and I'd love to hear a bit more about, like, you know, what was the environment? How did you? How did those stories emerge? But it sounds like there may have been some reticence. Um, for, on behalf of people that you know wanting to share with you, perhaps, but being a bit concerned about creating, putting them out in the open. Yeah, well, I guess it's dangerous to do that. Like, there's a reason why all of the women that I met in the groups were in those groups and why they did have to meet in private because they've all been in abusive or violent relationships. So, they, you know, things need, needed to be kept 
secure and um, anonymous. And that's why um, when I was gathering stories and asking women questions about their relationships, we were like absolutely clear from the beginning that we would always treat their stories anonymously. But what was great and unexpected is that um, since speaking to some of the survivors afterwards, lots of them found the process of contributing their story to a piece and then hearing it back as one of the collective voices in the show, uh, they found that process really empowering. And that wasn't, that was, that was an excellent outcome. It was always about bringing those voices to the, to the fore and having them heard in a public forum and encouraging conversation and debate around these hidden stories. But I didn't expect, um, for it to have such a positive outcome on the women by hearing their voices out loud and finding that experience of doing, of sharing their stories cathartic. One of the extraordinary things about the anonymity of like the Zoom experience is mm. that presumably they were able perhaps to be in the audience in a way they might not have yeah. felt comfortable being had it been live. Yeah, 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 that's true. The good thing about the fact it was online is that it could reach more people, but we had to be quite secure about just sending the link out like a couple of hours before but also it could reach more people but there was a concern I guess about it reaching uh the wrong people or perpetrators um but everyone seemed really happy with you know hearing um hearing the stories and and as you say like people could almost have a personal experience with the performance because it was online and in their homes so there was also an element of care that ended up happening around that like before the post-show panel we encourage everyone to go and do something nice for themselves because as much as we hope the performance would be enjoyable it's obviously touches on some challenging themes so care that people could have around themselves when watching the performance online that they might not have necessarily had um, in a theatre. Yeah, I completely know what you mean. Actually, I came. I was aware of the, your, your work, of the work because I spoke to somebody who had been an audience member and they'd been really moved by, by, by the experience. And, and the way they, they described it to me, particularly scenes where Leanne had turned around and said, hold on a minute, and you'd be, there'd been an awareness that the perpetrator of the violence, you know, the, the, the abuser was in the room, but that the audience couldn't see them. They were slightly off camera. Um, and she said it was just, just incredibly powerful being in that experience. As you said, of being in such an intimate place, but being completely powerless to stop it, to stop it happening. Yeah. And I think also the form, because we're used to being in each other's houses all the time, virtually at the moment, like the form let, le- really leans into the reality of how we're all living our lives at the moment. Whereas in, if you're in a theatre, you know, you're reminded because you can see the stage lights up there that, and the seats, you know, the head back of the heads of the people in the audience in front of you, you're reminded that you're watching a play. Whereas actually there's something much more, I think, powerful about doing something in this medium that touches on um, real life issues and real life themes, because it's like you could essentially, we've all seen into each other's homes. So what if we take it a step further? And it's like, actually, if we were to witness something, uh, what would we do? Could we do anything? And hopefully empowering the audience to recognize signs and signals of people that they're communicating with, you know, virtually or otherwise, 
so that if, it, if they were to see it in real life, they might be able to support that person if they're going through, you know, an abusive relationship or on on a really challenging journey. Um, Lucy, can I ask you something? Obviously, in like in the context of this work and the work that you've been, you know, doing around it and the research that you did, and I imagine your wider world, like you, you know, there there is just this enormous, as you said, there's this sort of stigma and a silence around domestic abuse and coercive control. Um, and in, in in if that is the case, then obviously then it is not the, the the noisy person has the person with power. <laughs> the silence becomes the role. The in some ways is is becomes complicit with the victim, and the noise is the work. I mean, I'm just sort of simplifying it a bit, right? But I, I'm but I'm just wondering, like, is there any way where that's reversed? Where actually to be silent is to be powerful? I think it's a really good question. I think it's interesting. I think it's about who you're having the conversation with actually, because actually the piece aims to have a conversation with people who are um, interested in learning more about coercive control and domestic abuse. It doesn't aim to have a conversation with perpetrators and persuade them that this happened. Do you know what I mean? It's the concept of the piece and the name of the piece all in your head was so called because so often women because um domestic abuse is is gendered violence um and predominantly happens um to women although of course can affect everyone the the term all in your head comes from i guess sending up a label that victims have been given so if to say it's all in your head is to question whether it happened at all um and i think it's about having a conversation with the audience and slash society about spreading awareness around it. It's not about having a conversation with the perpetrators and proving that it did happen. We all know that it did happen because that further kind of gaslights the uh, survivors again. But I think it's about how the voice is used and who you're and who you're speaking to. It's very silent when it comes to speaking to perpetrators. There's nothing to be said there at all. Or for anyone that's going to doubt that it happened, there's nothing to be said there at all. There's lots of silence there. I think that's really helpful. And it's just giving the power back to the victims, isn't it? Saying, you know, you can make the decision about what you want to do. And I think also domestic abuse and coercive control is so silence, uh, is so silencing and isolating. And that's why... I found being a member of women's groups, uh, like it saved me and it saved lots of other women because you realise that having been in a place where you've been told that this is just happening to you and this is probably your fault and probably all in your head, that you're around in a group of women who share the same stories and our stories were kind of cardboard cutouts of each other in terms of like how we were treated and it was almost like there was a a guide that perpetrators were using, um, you know, against their... um, victims and the the very talking about it meant that you as a survivor can come around come away from feeling shameful I came across the um saying shame hides in dark corners and I really like that and so the very act of talking about something means that the shame goes away but if you keep something a secret it's yours you know so what happens if we because I found that experience of sharing my stories in women's groups so useful what happens if we make that even bigger and this amplification of women's stories is not simply happening in the uk 
Athena Cassiou is a theatre director in Cyprus. We chatted about her work, specifically her recent establishment of a female-orientated theatre company in Nicosia. Audiences are, uh, I think, in the, for the past five years, have, have kind of returned to smaller venues all around uh, the big theatres and work is being done. And Parallel will develop this company called Saison Theatre uh, Project Season. Uh, with uh, three other theatre makers, Nevi Antoniadi and Margarena, uh, Magdalena Zira, which uh, had a really clear purpose, was uh, that we wanted to speak out and concentrate for a couple of years on the, on the subject of women <laughs> and what stories are not told. Um, and uh, we met through Magdalena, Natalie Haynes' book, and uh, we came across this very well-known stories to us of the Trojan War. Uh, and we had this idea of, through her book, to reconnect the audience with another perspective of this known, very well-known story to us. And it was the women's perspective. And it was amazing how the audience listened to these stories again through this different perspective than Natalie so well uh, uh, has given us. It's really lovely to hear that from you, Athena. And I completely agree. I, education, I'm a classicist. And mm -hmm. I, I think I think culture just, um, the culture that I learned in, it just never really opened up so many of these questions about why these women's voices are so silent. And we've never really thought about it. And I think it was probably Mary Baird's book, like that really <laughs> recently, her book about power, Mm -hmm. Women in power. Yeah. It was just this sudden realization that like, I had to rethink everything that I'd learned, everything that I'd read and studied had just silenced this half of the population. Exactly. And with this project that we started, um, we, it's, it's such a huge learning, uh, learning, uh, adventure and, uh, uh, with, uh, with all these people that we're meeting. Exactly as you say, is that, uh, we've, we come across and we've worked with this text, whether it's Shakespeare, whether it's Chekhov, whether whoever the playwright is. And now I, f I feel like every time now we approach this text, our attitudes or our behaviors are changing. And hopefully we are changing. So it's, uh, it's amazing to see the silences, what we've been missing, how our thought process has changed through. And we have, I mean, um, I, I love the work of Carol Churchill. Um, and I think I never realized how powerful her work is and how she has a really clear purpose. And I introduced the work here. And only now I understand why I related so much to her work and why I felt it was necessary for her work to be staged. I think now I'm starting to put the words together, why it was so important and how I related with this playwright. Athena, as a director, is so clearly careful about the choices she makes and the impact of those choices. I spoke to Rebecca in March about this responsibility when the UK was reeling from the recent murder of Sarah Everard. Do you, do you feel, because you have a voice um, or a, you know, a platform, thanks to the sort of success of your writing, do you feel that you have that, 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 that therefore you carry a responsibility to, to break those silences? I do. I didn't at first. At first, I just sort of reveled in the writing and I thought you know, writing about my dysfunctional love life was enough and funny and wonderful. And as the years have gone by and I've seen more injustice and I've felt injustice, you know, from age two onwards, you know, I don't mean it's a new thing, but I think as an adult, 
you do feel if you have a voice, then you need to use it. I mean, this has been an incredibly dark week for women and you hope that with the tragic death of Sarah Everard that things will improve. But society has been cruel to women ad infinitum, you know, and it's kind of just hard to know when that will stop. So I suppose in my youth, I kind of took it as a given um, and rebelled against it and kicked against it. Now, in my middle age, I think it's very important to write about it. Yeah. What I also love about your writing, Rebecca, and I, I, I was thinking about Ada, what I absolutely love is that you brought silence. You kept some of those silences. Is that something that you think is connected or am I just reading too deeply into the cinematography? Well, there's a lot of silence in Ida, and that's a lot of that is Pavel Pavlikovsky because he wanted it to be a very quiet film, you know, in terms of huge seismic emotion, but there is quietude there. And I suggested that we concentrate more strongly on these two women because their relationship was, you know, the heart of it. And and the silence of a convent is fascinating, I think, you know, that women are serving in silence predominantly, you know, to worship. And Ida, you know, being brought up, um, Anna thinks she's Catholic and actually she's Jewish. And for her to find out the brutality of her past, it's, I mean, the Holocaust kind of haunts me. And in a way, I always think the images, you know, or documentaries uh, are, the most powerful because it's sort of beyond words what happened. And so I suppose silence was integral to it because the loss was so huge. The idea was, you know, who is this young woman? And, you know, what what is blood? Because she hasn't known any of her blood, but yet it's in her. You know, what is family? Huge questions, you know, for someone who's been severed from a family group. And if ever I'm talking to students about writing, I say, you know, think about some scenes that may not have dialogue. You know, what does that scene look like? How does it feel if you take all the words away? Because so much of the time what we're saying isn't very necessary or what we're saying is subtext. So, yeah, I mean, silence in writing is is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I agree. I love that you brought in Sarah Everard. It's so, you know, in the way that the work that you're doing ends up becoming incredibly topical and resonant in a way, in Mm. ways that you you never, unfortunately, never imagined. Do you think a little bit about areas that kind of no-go areas in your writing, places that you just feel that actually you can't touch because it's just considered a problem, it would just be problematic? Yes, I do. And um, there are certain things in my life that I won't write about. Um... Mostly because I haven't worked them out myself and I haven't worked out how to process them. I mean, during this lockdown, I'm having therapy properly for the first time, which has been interesting. You know, I grew up in a very, very warm family, but we were never very far away from, um, you know, a lot of dark stuff going on and... You know, it was a very loving, warm, brilliant mother, brilliant siblings. But I, I suppose by the time I was 
15, I, I had known at least four women around me or girls, you know, who had suffered from abuse or rape, you know, and that's a lot of people in your totally close circle to know by the time you're 15. And now, you know, in my, I mean, I'm 52, you know, I, I have handfuls of women that have suffered that way. And, you know, the silence in that, and I haven't gone away from your question about myself because it is related to that, you know, the silence in that, the need to be silent is quite profound, you know, um, and it's systemic, you know, in terms of how we've dealt with these um, abuses, really, in society. Um, you know, there's such a sort of blame culture to do with women or I shouldn't have done this or I shouldn't have done that or maybe I was provocative or, you know, and all of that. So there are areas in my life that I definitely would not go to. More recently, I had trauma. Um, I spoke, Well, my father killed himself eight years ago and I probably wouldn't – I mean, I suppose everything I'm writing is, you know, there, there are, it's in me, but I wouldn't specifically write it because it's at the moment just too close. There's also something about, you know, if you're writing, you know, what is your material? Obviously – it's your own life in many, many ways, but you want to feel that there is something outside of that too. And if you connect with other subjects and people and real life people, I mean, recently I've been adapting She Said by um, Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey, and they're the New York Times reporters who outed Harvey Weinstein which is, you know, all about women being silenced, you know, women signing contracts and being paid money to be silent, you know, and how those NDAs are just provoking uh, a whole culture of abuse because the abusers go on, you know, they, they are not stopped. So, you know, in, I suppose what I'm saying is, you know, I'm drawn to um, quite dark material a lot of the time um when i say material you know these are real women i don't mean it loosely you know the and and i have i try to respect the stories that i am telling and i met three of the women who had been involved and talked to them at length about what had happened to them so you know i mean like silence is a strange thing isn't it because it can be so beautiful and so uplifting and silence can also be hellish, you know, and claustrophobic and suffocating. So it's um, it's an interesting word. I completely agree. I felt it more and more this year. I think during this year of silence, and I think you're completely right that it that it can it's a such a, it's a sort of poison chalice. It can be mm. both extraordinary and powerful and abusive. Trauma and its aftermath is such an everyday part of life for so many women. It's a great challenge to create work around it in a sensitive and meaningful way. I return to Lucy to discuss her approach. How was it working with a wellness, you know, you said you had a wellness therapist. Yeah, so um, wellbeing practitioner, the role, I worked with Lou Flat, who was incredible. And her role was to support the team 
in drawing from life experience, which is often the case in art. But I think very often we're expected as artists to kind of use our own, you know, this stereotype of like this suffering artist, use our experience to kind of make work. But actually there needs to be responsibility and care for the individuals who are making the work. Did you find working with Lou that there were places, there were places that people just didn't want to go to? Yeah, there's always going to be resistance um, with anyone going through like a process you know, of um, therapy or well-being, and I also think it's really important to listen to those moments of resistance because actually, I don't know if you know anything about window of tolerance. It's like you can't; it's not safe and healthy to unpick everything you know traumatic or horrible that happened to you in your life because you'd just be like a wreck on the floor. But what you can do, I think, is investigate in a in a careful and empathic and slow and caring way things that might come up even working with the well-being practitioner and same with this project and the themes of this project it's really important to have like consent and be boundary and say no I don't want to go there today or I don't want to touch on that yet like that's really important as part of the research for this podcast I spoke to Dr Diane Waller an art therapist and an emeritus professor of art psychotherapy at Goldsmiths University She talked of the amazing work that the therapists that she's supported over the years have enabled with their patients, particularly terminally ill patients. She spoke passionately about the role that art can play in releasing emotions when words are no longer possible. It's incredible work because it is it is so rare um, that one gets an opportunity to be to enable people in that kind of situation to have a means to express themselves people have literally been speechless um, because of the extent of their illness Um, so the art therapists have been able to engage them in in still being able to make some images it's difficult for them to talk and express and interaction is something that we've always tried to encourage in whatever form Um, the art therapist found that the female patients, the women patients, they didn't paint much, but they made um, astonishing things like bowls, little clay bowls. And they they were often, when they could express themselves, talking about their children and how it was important for the children to be safe. And in this world, they felt they, they weren't very safe. And it was, of course, a reflection of their own situation. Do you think that in some way the art gives permission for the person to be themselves? Do you think it's the, the actual, the, the creative act that enables that to happen? I do, yes. I mean, I do because I've seen it so many times. I've seen it work. Um, it's astonishing, actually. Um, it, it is really quite a privilege to be in, in the position of the art therapist there because I have seen occasions where someone would produce an image which is just so powerful, so expressive of, of their situation. You know, it almost doesn't need words. Um, and I think the creative process is enormously important. I really believe in that. Um, you know, sometimes someone will make an image, a very powerful image, and it can be quite tiring doing that, quite exhausting. And they might say, oh, I don't want to talk now. Can you can you keep it for me and bring it back next time? And then the next time, maybe the, the um, patient might want to say something 
or they might not. I think we try to put across that it's okay, whatever's happening, whatever they're feeling, it's all right. You don't have to be, you know, endlessly positive. And there is quite a lot of pressure, actually, um, I find, on people to put on a bit of an act. You know, when family come round, I, I've heard that said lots of times. And they're very, they seem to be very aware of how upsetting it is for the family, let alone themselves, you know. So with the art therapy, creative process can help, you know, to manage all those feelings that they have, you know, about upsetting the family. I think it's incredibly important. Yeah. I think if I wasn't, didn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be an art therapist really, I suppose, because I, I've, I've just seen how powerful it can be. And back to Lucy to talk more about her process. How was it working with, with Safa, the writer? Um, me, and Safa's relationship was very collaborative and she had absolutely no ego about it and was like, look, I want to create a piece that uh, serves these issues and serves the stories of the women involved. And we came, came from a very similar mindset, which helped. We were both really interested in pop culture and that's why music features quite heavily in the performance because... Um, we were talking about things that we'd noticed or gender roles and gender expectations in modern day society. I, um, we talked about fairy tales and, um, there's this, uh, amazing, uh, series by, I think the artist Dina Goldstein called fallen princesses. And it shows a photographic exhibition of what happens after the princesses, um, happily ever after in fairy tales and it's really dark <laughs> but it's really good and I guess we wanted to look at you know how um as women and certainly myself as young women I was you know reading things about women getting rescued so Rapunzel letting her hair down from a um, the tower, um, Snow White getting waiting to get kissed by a prince. And then when I found myself in these women's groups, I was taught the exact opposite. The thing that I came away with, which was like, what? And I was really interesting about this statement. I was told to beware of the rescuer. It's like, beware of the rescuer. And it's very common for perpetrators to sweep their victims off their feet, which is, you know, uh, sweeping someone off their feet is a sentence we associate with falling in love um, and actually um, say that they're going to make everything better, say about, you know, all these false promises. So to come away with beware of the rescuer and think about fairy tales and like, hold on, what are we being sold in society and in pop songs that are really... Um, like high tempo and like, I don't know, toxic, for example, by Britney Spears, like thinking about like that relationship is awful. <laughs> and if that relationship was to be a, in real life was to be a song, it would not sound <laughs> that happy in its tone. So we talked a lot about that. And um, luckily we came at the uh, project from exactly the same angle and it was really useful for me to uh, and I hope for Safa as well to have that sounding board with each other to have a conversation otherwise ironically the performance does become all in my head and might not reach you know the audiences that it needs to it, I think it's really important to have a kind and gentle interrogation with a collaborative partner. I love the idea of, of the two of you asking each other the questions to kind of forestall the audience asking those of you I think that's brilliant. I think you have to, yeah. And also it's lovely working on things independently, but actually you, 
you can thrash out a lot of those questions and kind of interrogate the piece kindly. It was really interesting having this chat with you because I hadn't thought about silence as a concept in the piece um, until I was asked to come on to this podcast. I guess something I haven't talked about in terms of silence is in the show there's one scene that Safa wrote which is stunning which is called The Silent Treatment um and like many of the scenes in the show we only see the survivor Leanne speaking to the camera but in this particular one the silent treatment scene um we set it up so that the audience is the perpetrator um and he's having dinner with uh, Leanne and throughout the scene he says absolutely nothing and we see her going on this merry dance to try and um get him to speak and try and get her him to reassure her that everything's okay which goes from questioning him to feeling frustrated he actually it's in response to him turning up at her workplace and calling her like 30 times at her while she was in a meeting we see her trying to make peace with this situation with this person who just won't have a conversation with her and the, and the haunting thing about this scene, which is why it's so beautifully written, is that at the end she ends up apologising. And I just think in terms of like the power of silence in that scene and the perpetrator saying nothing, but this the survivor exhausting themselves by uh, playing out all the possible options, questioning him and trying to find out what, what's wrong with their relationship because, you know, it was brilliant yesterday, it was brilliant before, it must be something she's done. Like, I just think that's quite an interesting scene to study from the point of view of silence and how much power there can be in silence, both positively and negatively as well. The point of this show is about educating everyone uh, so that whether it happens to them or someone near them, they, they recognise warning signs and that they can access support through our support back and, and not let abusive relationships happen in silence. It's better to ask. It's better to say something. Are you OK? Do you want to chat? Anything like that, um, as opposed to just being silent. Lucy had such an articulate vision of the potential impact of all in her head. I went back to Athena for her opinion on the influence and reach that theatre can have. I mean, do you think that, that the arts has the distinctly kind of an, a clear role to, that they can play in, 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 in revealing some of those silences? Um, I think t talking with academics and talking with uh, people that have studied gender, um, they're all, all saying one theatre performance can can say what a hundred lectures can say or what politicians can can never say. I think theatre has this um, very direct power to talk straight to someone's uh, uh, heart, soul and mind uh, because it's a dialogue, it's a, it's a co-experience. So theatre is a really powerful tool to, to speak out. And I think here in Cyprus, because we are a small island and because we've spoken up, I think I'm really glad things are, I feel like things are changing. Theatres are changing their repertoires. Theatres are becoming more conscious that there is this conversation going on, which I don't think there were before.
And especially now, I don't know if you, if you know, with what's happening in Greece and in, and in Cyprus with the Me Too movement, it has started a conversation very publicly. So it's a, a subject matter or questions that have been silenced and they've never been on the foreground of conversations are now very much in a spotlight and understanding that it's necessary to question classics, to question our points of view to question this silence. I did read recently that the, the Me Too movement was beginning was beginning to um, have an impact on in, in, in the Greek society. Are you able to tell tell me a little bit about it for the podcast? Um, an athlete in in Greece has spoke up about how she was abused, and then slowly, slowly, um, by sharing one story, uh, people are, are getting the courage to share more stories and not think, not being scared by this powerful uh system that's on top of them this fear that everyone has if i speak out i will lose job if i speak out i will be thrown out of this community which is very small so um i mean this is the power of stories when you speak out and you're not silenced then you're giving power to someone else to speak out and then there is a collection of stories that redefine who we are that can change a society, that can change behavior, that can change the systems. Um, and that's just by sharing stories and being uh, there for each other. It sounds like you're doing extraordinary work. Do you, do you feel uh, some sort of uh, responsibility yourself that, you know, as an artist, as a woman, uh, as a theater director, to help to, t to share those stories? I, I do feel responsibility. I think it is our responsibility because, I mean, if we're expecting people to come and see, uh, see the work because we're not doing work for ourselves. We're doing work to tap into an audience, to communicate with an audience. Then we have to be really careful of what we choose to share. And I think, yes, we have a responsibility of what we are portraying on stage, uh, of what stereotypes we, we decide to re retain, how, how, how we want to break down those stereotypes. Um, how we see characters from maybe a new perspective, a new, a new point of view. I mean, of course, of course. Yeah, 100%. Speaking out, and importantly, whether we have the choice to speak out, led me back to my conversation with Rebecca. We chatted about Meghan Markle's recent interview with Oprah Winfrey. I was thinking about that, the line that, that Oprah Winfrey used. That line that was trailed was, were you silent or were you silenced? Mm. Uh, is really hanging with me because I think, you know, there's an active decision to be silent and then there is something that there's a, there's society takes that choice out of your hands and you are either forced to be silent mm. or perhaps you're not able to be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I ache for the people who are silenced, you know, children, women, men, you know, I, I don't say it's an all female thing, you know, everyone can suffer from it and it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing. You know, when I think of the word silence, I think of beauty, you know, but when I think of a lot of the work I've been doing lately, you know, working on another screenplay that is very much about um, people being silenced, about horrific past events. I mean, just the whole play of power is um, kind of so repellent that we haven't got it right yet. You know, this power play of... Some people can tell other people to be quiet. You know, it's such a simple notion, isn't it? Be quiet. 
I remember when I was, uh, I think I was 15 and I was auditioning to get into the National Youth Theatre and I was doing Troilus and Cressida and the line, stop my mouth, you know, it always stayed with me, this stop my mouth and there's a woman telling a man to tell her to be quiet. You know, it's quite sort of strange, you know, it's sort of, um, you know, because she doesn't want to say how much she loves him. So it's kind of like an innocent request, but this kind of binding which I suppose I think especially of, of women, you know, binding their feet and binding their mouths. And, you know, it has to stop. And I don't know how we do that. I mean, America at least has got rid of its biggest misogynist. Um, Trump is gone and he is finally silenced, which is a very good thing. Um, but how we change and shift, I don't know. It's, it's a hard problem. It would be amazing if, you know, we can just keep protesting. It's It just amazes me that in this day and age, you know, 2021, you know, we still can't treat women decently, you know, that we can, still can't call misogyny a hate crime. You know, why why is that so difficult? Why isn't that apparent rather than, you know, something that needs to be pleaded for? But I, I, I mean, young women today, I think, are very hopeful and brilliant. Yeah, and they must shout, you know, the roaring girl. You know, we must all be the roaring girl and um, fight for our voices. My immense thanks to Rebecca, Lucy, Athena and Diane for their insights and commitment to speak out and enable others to do the same. We'll put links to their work in the show notes. Next time on the Dash Arts podcast, we'll explore the silencing of voices and cultures across national and political divides. I'll chat more to Athena about the border across the island of Cyprus and to other extraordinary international artists breaking silences in extremely challenging situations. You can subscribe to our podcast via our website or wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you don't miss it. And if you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and not silent and would mean the world to us. The Dash Arts podcast was produced by Rachel Head. I'm Josephine Burton and we'll be back in a fortnight with more conversation. Thank you for listening. Sure.